is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at WVEW.org. And this is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections, on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. Our shows are recorded and will be uploaded to our SoundCloud and iTunes. We also have a new Twitter account, so you can also find us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. And this is Anna for Indigo Radio. Happy Sunday, everyone. Today, we are airing letters read by other Indigo Radio hosts. These letters were written by George Jackson. And this show is in commemoration of his legacy and Black August, which celebrates Black resistance, and it's tied especially to Black political prisoners. George Jackson was a field marshal of the Black Panther Party while he was incarcerated in the San Quentin prison in California. He was assassinated by a prison guard at San Quentin on August 21st, 1971. So we are coming up on his anniversary uh, of this assassination this coming Friday. And this incident, his assassination, was one of the primary pushes for the inception of Black August. So what is known as Black August began in 1979, and it was first celebrated actually in the San Quentin prison. It commemorated the previous decade of courageous prison struggle as well as centuries of Black resistance. George Jackson was only 19 when he was convicted of armed robbery, and he never lived outside the prison again, spending the next 11 years locked up, seven and a half of those in solitary. During his time in prison, Jackson became an inspiration to other revolutionaries of his generation. Jackson studied within the confines of the prison and along with other prisoners, dedicated themselves to raising political consciousness. While in prison, Jackson published two widely read books, Soledad Brothers, which uh, today's readings are from, and the other book is Blood in My Eye. Jackson was known as one of the Soledad, Soledad Brothers, one of three black men in San Quentin that were charged with the murder of a white prison guard. It's also uh, important to point out that at age 17, um, George Jackson's younger brother, Jonathan Jackson, who was only 17 at the time, led an armed invasion with three others into the Marion Court courthouse um, in August of 1970. So George was to be assassinated a year, about a year later. And Jonathan was demanding the release of the Soledad brothers. Jonathan was shot dead in this attempt. Later of Jonathan, George wrote... And this is a quote, he was free for a while. That's more than most of us can expect. So we're going to so start the show with a song by Nas called Get Down, which he dedicates to Jonathan and George Jackson. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll be back with get, the letters. Get, get down. Will kill us a walk like Pistol Pete and Pappy Mason Gave the young boys admiration Prince from Queens and Fritz from Harlem Street legends The drugs kept the hood from starving 
Pushing cars, Nicky Bars was the 70s. But there's a long list of high profile celebrities. Worldwide on the thorough side of things. Live as kings. Some died, one guy, one time, one day grasped me. As I'm about to blast heat, 40 side of Vernon. I turn well, he asks me, What you up to? The cops gon' bust you. I was a teen, drunk or brew. Stumbled, I wondered if God sent him. Cause two squad cars entered the block and looked at us. I ain't flinched when they watched. I took it upstairs, the bathroom mirror. Brushed my hair, staring at a young disciple. I almost gave my life to what the dice do. Yeah, man, throwing them bones. Hoping my ace get his case thrown. His girl ain't wait for him. She in the world, she don't hear Why he looking at cinephones? The pretty girls showing they little. Gangsters don't die, he's living proof. The DA who tried him was lying. The white dude killed his mother during the case. Hung jury, now the DA is being replaced. Pre-trial hearing is over, it's real for the soldier. Walks in the courtroom, the look in his eyes is wild. Triple homicide, I sit in the back aisle. I wanna crack a smile when I see him. Throw up a fist for black power, cause all we want is his freedom. He grab a court officer's gun and started squeezing. Then he grabbed the judge, screams out, nobody leaving. Everybody. Get down, get down. Cause I was with a crew that had a people killed, called up my cousin. He responded cool, but told me, Y'all hear this? Get down, get down, get down, get down, get everybody. That was Nas with Get Down, and you are listening to Indigo Radio on the air every Sundays at noon. And today's show is commemorating Black August and the legacy of George Jackson. And we are doing that by reading some of his letters that are from his book, Soledad Brother. 
And we're going to start with a letter that is read by Derek Johnson. Derek is also a Indigo Radio host. He is going to be teaching up in Springfield, Vermont. Um, so we're going to go right to his letter. Thanks for joining us. So we are here with Derek Johnson, and Derek is going to read one of the letters. Derek, can you introduce the letter and then just go right into reading it? Sure. So this letter was written on June the 12th of 1970. The letter is written by George Jackson, and it's a letter that he is writing to the people during this movement. And so I'll just read it for you. June 12th, 1970. You know, I had a visit yesterday from an old friend, Joan. They told her she couldn't come back again, an economy move. The cost to state too much to supervise my half hour visits, so I'll be held in, in comicado, it seems. They turned my sister away today. Someone is going to have to come up with some guts. These fools must be stopped. Absolute power in the hands of idiots. It makes me think of Rome and England. Do you know where the barbarians and guerrillas are going to come from to destroy Imperial America? From the black colonies and these concentration camps. The three of us are the only convicts in this joint who have, who have to accept half-hour visits with a special guard, handcuffed and chained. Now it seems we won't even get that. My sister, my brother can't visit me. And what could be the last days of my life? Well, one good thing comes from this experience. No question remains in the minds of any member of my family as to where their energies would, be, would best be spent. My father will have a whole den of panthers there to feed. With each attempt the pigs made on my life in San Quentin, I would send an SOS out to my family. They would always respond by listening and writing letters to the joint pigs and Sacramento rats but they didn't entirely accept that I was telling them the truth about the pig mentality. I would get dubious stares when I told them the lieutenants and the others would proposition some of the most vicious white convicts in the state. Kill Jackson. We'll do you some good. You understand? My father wanted to know why. And all I could tell him was that I would I relate to Mao and couldn't kowtow. His mind couldn't deal with it. I would use every device every historical and current example I could reach to explain to him that there were no good pigs. But the task was too big. I was fighting his mind first, and his fear of admitting the existence of an unidentifiable enemy element that was oppressing us, because that would either commit him to attack that enemy or force him to admit his cowardice. I was also fighting the establishment's public relations and propaganda machine. The prisons all used the clean, straight face or the old, harmless-looking pigs to work in areas where they must come in contact with free people. And these pigs are never allowed to use their tusk. Regarding the racism, my father would remind me that there were black pigs too. But of course, that means nothing at all. They simply work around the blacks when necessary. One guard or two guards working together is all that's needed to murder any con in the joint. But it isn't really necessary to work around the black pigs. They'll all cooperate or turn their heads. 
the black cop could be a large factor in preventing our genocide, but no help can be expected from that quarter. The same stupidity and desperation that brought him to the gates prevent him from interceding. The job, the wage means too much to him. Often he feels compelled to prove himself, prove that he's loyal to the force, prove that he is not prejudiced in favor of us, prove that he is honest. His honesty prevents him from dealing in contraband as every white pig does. Look, I was in San Quentin for seven straight years. I knew everything that was brought in and by whom. The white pig actually considers it his privilege to supplement his income by bringing in and selling narcotics, weapons, and of course, pornography. The black pig is afraid, too unsure of his position to be dishonest. This same fear will cause him to show more zeal in the club therapy sessions than even the whites manage. If the victim is black, he's going to get so mad that the white pigs will have to stand back and let him swing. If they don't have murder planned for that session, they'll have to put that nigger off, on, off of you. A pig is a pig. It all falls into place. I see the whole thing much clearer now, how fascism has taken possession of this country. The interlocking dictatorship from country level on up to the Grand Dragon in Washington, D.C. The solidarity between the prison here and the courts in Salinas, between the judge and grand jury, the judge and the DA, and the other city officials. The institutions have has effectively cut me off from any relief. The unmeek have taken over this whole county, the state, the entire country. They work together to the same end, effective control. I knew of these links before this, long before this, but seeing it in operation is pretty frightening. What force binds them together? I'm referring to the intermediary, the physical thing, not the idea. What is it that really ties that fat rat with a chain of department stores to an un uninformed pig? The fat rat wants the country and world policed, made safe for his business to expand. But how does he sell the ideal to the man who must do the policing? Money is the bond, I think. They're in it for the money, these pigs and skinny rats. The fascist ideal doesn't really take hold until one gets into the upper levels of the power pyramid. Then any ideal that preserves becomes attractive. People's government would decentralize its power that they hold over us. These men must be stopped. Power to the people. George. Thank you, Derek. That was great. I, I read that earlier this morning and I feel like listening to you reading it and I was following along, it just, a lot of the lines just sunk in even more to me. Mm. Uh, I would love to hear why you chose that letter to read. Sure. And I'm going to try not to get emotional. Um, That's okay. <laughs> but I already feel myself a little getting emotional. Um, yeah. I chose this letter because I have a brother, a younger brother, who has been um, a prisoner of basically uh, the state of Maryland since he was 16 years old. Um, and he's now 37, 38 years old. Mm -hmm. He didn't commit a violent crime. He was young and 
Well, let me reach it. He committed a crime with a gun. He didn't shoot or kill anyone. I don't even think he pistol whipped the delivery guy. But because he had been in and out of the system uh, at such a young age, um, they basically turned his sentences, they sentenced him as an adult. And um, I think for a very long time, because we had had such a a mixed relationship with um, prisons and police, that I was one of those people as well who wanted to believe that the system was created to deal with crime that people kind of, you know, did. And, and that was the way that they could be re rehabilitated. And I think I held that same belief and I didn't believe like what he was saying about his experience until I guess I started to become politicized and understood the whole importance for prisons to the system and to how it controls poor people and black and brown people. And just working with him to try to get him freed from the system. And most recently, there was a whole campaign of trying to get him released. And, you know, basically fell down to a, a board of nine people that did their decision in private that we'll never be able to see the results of. And it was denied. Mm. And no reason was given. And when George Jackson talks about basically how we outside of the system, we, we uh, who are not incarcerated, how we sometimes look at it, I was there and that was my thoughts. And then, you know, and then it was like what he said, like about his father, like either he's gonna have to deal with his own thoughts around the system or he's going to really want to do something that's really going to be off the cuff and probably not good for his father. And, and so that's how you feel. It's like, you feel so hopeless because it's a system that's kind of like it controls everything and it controls people's lives. And so now my work is really heavily, or at least I'm coming in contact with the work of really believing that, right, there's no way to reform a prison um, or the justice system in that regard or the police, mm -hmm. that is all about abolition because it is just mm -hmm. about business. I mean, basically it is slavery continued and the people inside are there to serve a purpose, which is to keep a bed so that these institutions can keep getting money. Um, and they're making it off the backs of people who, you know, they've done their time. They've done more mm -hmm. than their time and there's yeah. no reason for them to be there. And it's, so my work is now is trying to just spread that message, not only for my brother, but for every person, mm -hmm. black, brown, white, poor, who was locked away and have, you know, they can only advocate so far for themselves. So we have to stand with them because they're just as important. Their freedom is just as important as my own and everyone else's. Mm. Yeah. One of the things for me that comes up in this piece. And Derek, thank you for sharing all of that. I think that's really important. And even to see like the trajectory of your own thinking around that, and then your personal experience with it, with your brother. When I was listening to you read this, this line of, you said the desperation that brought him to the gates prevents him from interceding. And he's, he's talking about the black cop 
And I once, a couple years ago for Indigo Radio, I interviewed a guy, um, a worker that worked at Rikers Island. And he worked in human resources. His job was to um, develop programming for people who worked within the jail to de-stress them, to bring their stress levels down. Mm-hmm. And it was a really interesting conversation with him. And one of the things that he said in this piece uh, reminded me of it is he talked about how a lot of the people working in the jail come from the same communities as the people incarcerated. And that oftentimes there's even um, times when they know each other. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this piece brings in that and what he says about the black officers or the black cops. And that even today I I was listening to an, uh, actually it was a BPR story. And it made me really angry because the person that was being interviewed was talking about how actually police killings, the numbers are actually down. And that if we look at crime, like crime is where people shooting each other, it's way higher. And I feel like it was bringing in this black on black crime is what he was trying to bring it to and like really change the conversation. Um, And so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that in regards to this piece. Yeah, I do. I have two points that I, you know, the first point is that my brother, his name is Julian, where he's basically, he's at a facility in um, Maryland, in Jessup, Maryland. And the majority of the guards there are um, first generation American, but from the continent and the various countries across the continent of Africa and throughout the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And that whole idea that, you know, um, um, collectively within it, within the sector of black certain stratas of black culture, there's this othering of blackness. So you know, if you're from a nation like Africa and you're a first generation American or you immigrated here, that somehow you're different. And so that dynamic is kind of set up inside the prison, and it kind of talks about how the officer there who's black, who could do something, who could participate in and and not be a part of the system or assist the officers, though because he is black and they are also black, that there is like this, there has to be this kind of almost othering, this distance, because I have to show the people in charge or these powerful people who are white that, you know, you and I are different, are different. Mm-hmm. So that comes into the way the guards interact with the prisoners. Mm-hmm. And so my brother talks about that all the time, about how, you know, sometimes the officers, as George Jackson talked about in 1970, they come down even harder on on prisoners or, you know, because they have a narrative in their head about crime and and what they believe about people who are in prison. And I think the opposite of that is also, or the all, not even the opposite, but the whole notion of this Black-on-Black crime, you hear that a lot, especially amongst middle-class Black people or people who prescribe to this, um, you know, Black nationalism that we have to deal with Black-on-Black crime before we talk about uh, how Black people are being killed in the streets by police. And for me, 
I, I don't prescribe to that. And I kind of get a little upset because yes, any person who is committing a crime against another person is that's problematic. But that is something that happens amongst all, you know, quote unquote races. Pe- people kill people who are closest to them, who are in their community, and most times who look like them. But that's not the case with the police and the justice mm-hmm. system. Um, the yeah. justice system is intentionally allowing for the mer- murder of black and brown people uh, disproportionately um, throughout the yeah. country. And so for that, for me, that argument is a mute point and I try not to even engage in it. And I, in my, my retort to it is what I just said, because it's not you. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I, I also read this article a while ago that talked about uh, the sociologist uses the term hyper incarceration rather than mass incarceration. And I thought it was really interesting because what he says is that mass incarceration makes it seem like anyone could be swept up into this. Mm. Um, but hyper incarceration he uses because it's exactly what you're saying is that it disproportionately affects black and brown people and poor people. And that that term in a way could be more useful. So I was just thinking that as you were talking. The other thing just to end it here is that one of the things in the piece, the, the one of the first things that is said is that George talks about how he's being restricted from seeing people and that um, it could be like the last days of his life. And actually he ended up being murdered um, August 21st, 1971, about a year later when, from when this letter is written, he was only 29 years old. Mm. And I was wondering if you just have any last thoughts on what George Jackson uh, and I would say his immense resilience um, and the words that he shares, what can that teach us in this current moment? Yeah, I, I think about that because, you know, like right now, I was talking to my brother the other night. You know, we can't visit, of course, you know, because of COVID-19 and just him being in that situation where there's not really being care taken for the people who are in prison, incarcerated. It's not, there's no care being taken. And so there's concern, basically, you know, they're shuffling Mm -hmm. people around, moving them in and testing, but not really making it safe for the people there. And so... Like in today's world, you know, that is the fear, you know, like you have no control over your life because someone else is controlling it. And then we're in this space where anything is possible as it relates to like health right now. And and it relates to being out in the streets if you're just there. And I think for me, what is so special about my brother and people like George Jackson and people who are incarcerated, especially people who have been there for such a long time, basically political prisoners is that mm-hmm. they are always engaged in the fight for freedom. They are yeah. always engaged. They are in the law library. They are advocating. They are supporting one another, you know? Like, they are doing everything that they possibly can within the confines of that small space that, for me, is just, like, it's so, it just revs me up. It makes me want to do more. Um, you know, because they don't know what's going to happen the next day to the next, but they're still always fighting for freedom. And they're not thinking about just for themselves. They're thinking about it collectively. 
most times people that people who are incarcerated, they're, not, they're thinking like, if I can make this happen for me, then maybe it can happen for somebody else too. And so that's for me, that's, that's what I take from, you know, when I converse with my brother, but also when I read uh, George Jackson's letters that, you know, there, mm. there's always going to be a push forward. There's a reason to. That makes me think of a letter from Leonard Peltier, who said that he talks about his fight inside and he says something to the effect of, if I can do it inside here, you sure as hell can do it outside there. And um, that's always stuck with me too. All right, Derek, thank you so much for both reading the letter and for all your thoughts today on George Jackson and, and talking about your brother and your own experiences. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. All day long they're saying, Ooh. the sound of the men working on the chain gang that's the sound of the men working on the chain gang all day long they work so hard till the sun is going down working on the highways and byways and wearing wearing a frown you hear them moaning their lives away Then you hear somebody say That's the sound of the men working on the chain Gang That's the sound of the men working on the chain Gang Can't you hear them saying mm, I'm going home one of these days I'm going home see my woman whom I love so dear, but meanwhile, I've got to work right here. That's the sound of the men working on the chain. Gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain. Gang. All day long they're saying, my, 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 my. My work is so hard, give me water. I'm thirsty, my, my work is so hard, oh, my, 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 my work is so hard, oh, Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station.
listening to Indigo Radio every Sunday at noon, and this is Anna with Indigo Radio. We are doing a show on George Jackson, reading his letters, commemorating Black August. You just heard from Derek Johnson, and Derek also sharing about his brother and the sort of trajectory of Derek's own thinking about prisons uh, and incarceration. We're going to go now to Nina Kunimoto. Nina is also a Indigo host. She is a UMass graduate student, and she's also Spark faculty with the Spark Teaching Institute. And Nina is going to read a letter that George writes to his mother. Dear Mama, please don't take what I expressed in my last letter too seriously. I was feeling extremely bad. Try to relax. The mental depression you are presently gripped by comes from a very common cause, particularly among us Blacks here in the U.S. As a defense, we look at life through our rose-colored glasses, rationalizing and pretending that things are not so bad after all. But then day after day, tragedy after tragedy strikes and confuses us, and our pretense fails to aid or dispel the nagging feeling that we cannot have security in an insecure society, especially when one belongs to an insecure caste within this larger society. I believe sincerely that you will be a very unhappy and perplexed woman for as long as you try to pretend that you have nothing in common with this culture, or better, that this culture has anything in common with you. And as long as you pretend that there is no difference between men, and as long as you try to be more English than the English, while the English ignore your attempts and use your humility to their advantage. I suggest no action, no physical action that is, for I know you have never been a woman of action, but I do suggest that you purge your mind little by little, of some of your Western notions. Direct your nervous animosity at the right people and their system and stop. For your own sake, please stop blaming yourself. If you were, right now, walking toward your kitchen with the whole family's life savings in your hand, let's say, and I sneak up behind you and pulled the rug from under you, and you fell and broke your arm, leg, nose and the money flew into the burning fireplace would you get up blaming me for pulling the rug or would you just lay there and blame yourself pretend that you didn't really fall or that the whole thing made no difference anyway the analogy is perfect do you know who i blame for what has happened to me the last 25 years and before to my ancestors I've been narrow-minded indeed if I blamed any of you, my folks. I don't blame you for not teaching me how to get what I wanted without getting put in jail, nor do I blame myself. I was born knowing nothing and am a product of my total surroundings. I blame the capitalistic dog, the imperialistic, cave-dwelling brute that kidnapped us, pulls the rug from under us, 
made us a caste within his society with no vertical economic mobility. As soon as all this became clear to me and I developed the nerve to admit it to myself that we were defeated in war and are now captives. Slaves are actually that we inherited a neo-slave existence, I immediately became relaxed, always expecting the worst, and started working on the remedy. Can you play chess? It relaxes, builds foresight, alertness, concentration, and judgment. Learn so we can play next year. George. Thank you, Nina, for reading that. And I would love to hear your thoughts on why you chose that particular letter to read. Sure. I mean, obviously, it's a whole book of, of different letters to different people. Um, and of course, it tugs at my heart that it's to his mother. Yeah. But I really appreciate how he really tries to explain to her and to the rest of us, you know, sort of this, it's that it's a systemic issue. It's not about her. It's not her individual problems or faults or issues. It is a, it is a society that is structured to exploit black people. And so, and also I really enjoyed how in the end, I mean, although he doesn't say it, it, He's like, you need to build foresight. You need to be alert. You need to concentrate, right? Mm. You need to understand how to defeat the other side. And, mm. and I think that, that chess is a really good analogy. You know, that there are two antagonistic forces that I think he's trying to portray. Yeah. Now, I would agree with that per se, but... I think that, that I interpret it that way. I also think about the chess piece and what I know of George Jackson and his discipline mm-hmm. and his discipline of studying. Mm-hmm. Um, and also what you were saying, the other piece that I loved when you read it was the, and you were getting at it too, this blame was that last paragraph, the, the big paragraph at the end of 111. And yeah. that, I've been talking a lot um, with some training that I'm doing with advocates of the Women's Freedom Center about blame the victim um, yeah. mentality mm-hmm. and that false consciousness that we, and you and I were talking about this today too, that we are entrenched in and that we have to study it in order to like also dig it out of ourselves. Absolutely. And I feel like that's what he's getting at too. Yeah. And it's so easy Kind of like, I mean, going back to, you know, certain readings about um, gender. I know you and I assign, um, was it Alan Johnson? Yeah. Uh, patriarchy, the system, you know, mm-hmm. like the system is designed to push us and how he phrases it is, is a path of least resistance, you know, and, and we were talking about stereotypes of, um, you know, survivors of human trafficking today and and also of gender violence. And it's like, it's not as though I don't have thoughts that are harmful or supremacist because I, I am drenched in this society. But I think as you were saying, you know, this study helps 
with the self-critique. It helps with rooting, as, you, as you're saying, like digging it out of oneself, allowing you to sort of step back for a moment and say, hey, wait a minute, why am I thinking that? Where does that idea come from? Yeah, and then sheds the light. And what I think he's saying too in the piece that you read is then shedding the light on the system. And that's now right. where do we need to, what is and who is our enemy type thing? And, and where do we need to put our energy? Right. Nina, thank you so much for reading. You're welcome. Thank you. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Suspended from school, I'm scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. Shed tears with my baby sister. Over the years, we was poor than other little kids. And even though we had different daddies, the same drama when things went wrong, we blamed mama. I reminisce on the stress I caused. It was hell, hugging on my mama from a jail cell. In elementary, hey, I see the penitentiary one day. Running from the police, that's right. Mama catch me, put a whoop into my backside. And even as a crack fiend, mama, you always was a black queen, mama. I finally understand for a woman, it ain't easy trying to raise a man. You always was committed, a poor single mother on welfare. Tell me how you did it, there's no way I can pay you back. But the plan is to show you that I understand You all appreciate it Dear mama You all appreciate it Now ain't nobody tell us it was fair No love for my daddy cause the coward wasn't there He passed away and I didn't cry Cause my anger wouldn't let me feel for a stranger They say I'm wrong and I'm heartless But all along I was looking for a father, he was gone I hung around with the thugs And even though they sold drugs They showed a young brother love I moved out and started really hanging I needed money of my own so I started slanging I ain't guilty cause even though I sell rocks It feels good putting money in your mailbox I love paying rent when the rent's too Hope you got the diamond necklace that I sent to you Cause when I was low, you was there for me You never left me alone because you cared for me And I can see you coming home after work late You're in the kitchen trying to fix us a hot plate You're just working with the scraps you was given And mama made miracles every Thanksgiving But now the road got rough, you're alone You're trying to raise two bad kids on your own And there's no way I could pay you back but my plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. And dear mama, you all appreciate it. Pour and I reminisce. Cause through the drama, I can always depend on my mama. And when it seems that I'm hopeless, you say the words that can get me back in focus. When I was sick as a little kid, to keep me happy, there's no limit to the things you did. And all my childhood memories are full of all the sweet things you did for me. And even though I act crazy, I gotta thank the Lord that you made me. There are no words that can express how I feel. You never kept a secret. Always stay real, and I appreciate how you raised me. 
And all the extra love that you gave me I wish I could take the pain away If you can make it through the night, there's a brighter day Everything will be alright if you hold on It's a struggle every day, gotta roll on And there's no way I could pay you back But my plan is to show you that I understand You all appreciate it That was Tupac Shakur with Dear Mama, which is a song that he wrote and dedicated to his mother. And Tupac was assassinated also at a very young age, at the age of 25. And you're listening to Indigo Radio uh, on the air Sundays at noon. This is a uh, show, if you're just joining us, to commemorate Black August and the legacy of George Jackson. We're going to go to our final reading with Chris Levensey, who as a host of Indigo Radio, and he is a teacher in Springfield, Vermont. Um, He's going to share the letter that he picked. Chris, thank you for being part of the George Jackson show. We actually ended up holding it off until August, which makes sense now because it's Black August, and this is August 21st is the anniversary of George Jackson's murder. Yes. Um, Yeah, so... I would love for you to read the letter and then share why you picked that. Um, and I know that you've also, you're a teacher in Springfield, Vermont, and have taught a class on mass incarceration. Yes. Uh, so it would be great to have, have your thoughts on that, too. Okay, great. Um, this letter is from April 17th, 1970, and it goes as follows. Um, Dear Faye, slavery is an economic condition. Today's neo-slavery must be defined in terms of economics. The chattel is a property, one man exercising the property rights of his established economic order, the other man is that property. The owner can move that property or hold it in one square yard of the earth's surface. He can let it breed other slaves or make it breed other slaves. He can sell it, beat it, work it, maim it, eff it, kill it. But if he wants to keep it and enjoy all the benefits of that property of this kind can render, he must feed it sometimes. He must clothe it against the elements. He must provide a modicum of shelter. Chattel slavery is an economic condition which manifests itself in the total loss or absence of self-determination. The new slavery, the modern variety of chattel slavery updated to disguise itself, places the victim in a factory, or in the case of most Blacks, in support roles inside and around the factory system, service trades, working for a wage. However, if work cannot be found in or around the factory complex, today's neo-slavery does not allow even for a modicum of food and shelter. You are free to starve. The sense and meaning of slavery comes through as a result of our ties to the wage. You must have it. Without it, you would starve or expose yourself to the elements. 
one's entire day centers around the acquisition of the wage. The control of your eight or 10 hours on the job is determined by others. You are left with 14 to 16 hours. But since you don't live at the factory, you have to subtract at least another hour for transportation. Then you are left with 13 to 15 hours to yourself. If you can afford three meals, you are left with 10 to 12 hours. Rest is also a factor in efficiency, though. So we have the right to take eight hours away for sleeping, leaving two to four hours. But one must bathe, comb, clean your teeth, shave, dress. There is no point in protracting this. I think it should be generally accepted that if a man or woman works for a wage at a job that he doesn't enjoy, and I am convinced that no one can enjoy any type of assembly line work or plumbing or hood carrying or any job in the service trades, then he qualifies for this definition of neo-slave. The man who owns the factory or shop or business runs your life. You are dependent on this owner. He organizes your work, the work upon which your whole life source and style depends. He indirectly determines your whole day in organizing you for work. If you don't make any more in wages than you need to live, you are, you are a neo-slave. If you, you qualify if you cannot afford to leave California for New York. If you cannot visit Zanzibar, Havana, Peking, or even Paris when you get the urge, you are a slave. If you're held in one spot on this earth because of your economic status, it is just the same as being held in one spot because you are the owner's property. Here in the black colony, the pigs still beat and maim us. They murder us and call it justifiable homicide. A brother who had a smoking pipe in his belt was shot in the back of the head. Neo-slavery is an economic condition, a small knot of men exercising the property rights of their established economic order, organizing and controlling the lifestyle of the slaves as if he were in fact property. Succinctly, an economic condition which manifests itself in the total loss or absence of self-determination. Only after this is understood and accepted can we go on to the dialectic that will help us in a remedy. A diagnosis of our discomfort is necessary before the surgery. It is always necessary to justify the letting of blood, and we don't want the knife to damage any related parts that could be spared for later use. The pig is an instrument of neo-slavery, to be hated and avoided. He is pushed to the front by the men who exercise the unnatural right over property. You've heard the patronizing BS about the thin blue line that protects property and the owners of property. The pigs are not protecting you, your home and its contents. Recall they never found the TV set you lost in that burgl burglary. They're protecting the unnatural right of a few men to own the means of all of our subsistence. The pig is protecting the right of a few private individuals to own public property. The pig is merely the gun, the tool, a mentally inanimate utensil. It is necessary to destroy the gun, but destroying the gun and sparing the hand that holds it will forever relegate us to a defensive action. Spare the hand that holds the gun and it will simply fashion another. They send us to school to learn how to be so disgusting. They send our children to places of learning operated by men who hate us and hate the truth. It is clear that no school would be better. Burn it. All the fascist literature. Burn that too. Then equip yourself with the little red book. There is no other way to regain our senses. I'm going to stop there. He goes on to talk a little bit more and he connects um, 
to us or people connecting to the world internationally. And so I just, it's a really powerful piece that he's writing. Yeah, definitely. I, he's so precise with his language is what I was noticing and listening to that one. Yeah. And Chris, can you just um, talk a little bit about, uh, I know you teach this class or you did last year around incarceration and what do you think are, is just the importance of George Jackson's voice then and, and even now? Well, I, I think one of the things that he um, articulates really well is that the both um, the economic kind of conditions of people that both black and white living in this world, this neo-slavery that we live in, which I think is really powerful. And it, it's something that my students can connect to. Mm-hmm. But then also, I think he makes a really great connection here about the purpose and the the use of school um, for replicating an ideology which continues to enslave us and his mm. um, repulsion to it, saying I could only last a month in this. And that certainly um, connects to, I think, some of the things that our students feel and the experience of what uh, school does to replicate. And the, and one of the, the, I didn't think about this till just now, but that phrase about, um, the grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change um, is a really, really powerful thing to think about too, that it's mm-hmm. been used as a way to get through and accept the way the world is. And I think that he's very clearly um, resisting that. And so um, this, uh, his writings and many others um, about the conditions of being in prison, but also um, the, conditions that put people in prison, I think are really important for um, my students to understand. And I think the idea that I've heard often, like, well, if they're in prison, they must have done something wrong. And I think that he very much resists that uh, in a number of ways. And as you said, very precisely and clearly and historically, the, the references that he uses, I think are fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Well, great. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us for this George Jackson show. Thank you. I can't wait to hear the whole thing. That was Chris Levensee reading George Jackson. And we are at the end of the show. We want to thank you all for joining us today. And I'm going to read one quote from George Jackson before we finish here. He says, Settle your quarrels. Come together. Understand the reality of our situation. Understand that fascism is already here, that people are dying who could be saved, that generations more will die or live poor, butchered, half-lives if you fail to act. Do what must be done. Discover your humanity and your love in revolution. Pass on the torch. Join us. Give up your life for the people. And I think that that is very pertinent today in 20. 20 as we face a lot of challenges. I think there's so much that we can learn from George's life and from the words that he leaves with us. So we're going to end today's show and go out with a song by Little Milton, We Are Gonna Make It. Thanks everyone. We may not have a sense 